So, as a pastor, as a pastor, I have gotten a front row seat to the sexual revolution in America. I have gotten a front row seat to it. So I, I have experienced and I've sat in my office and in coffee shops with all kinds of situations. Here's some of the situations I've faced on the other side of the sexual revolution. I've sat with people whose spouses are cheating on them sexually. That, that means they're having sex with someone other than their spouse. Okay? I've sat with people who are their boyfriend, girlfriends, they're dating, and they're like, you know, Pastor Max, we think we're ready. And I'm like, great, you want to get married? And they're like, no, we just want to move in. And I'm like, well, do you like each other? Are you committed? You know, it's just $30. We could, you know, we could do this this weekend. And no, 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 Pastor Max, you're not getting it. We just want to make sure this is going to work because they're not sure. It might not work, okay? Um, I've sat with uh, young people who are boohooing like no tomorrow. They're 29, 30, 31, and they came of age in the 90s and got the true love weights ring, and they've kept themselves pure, and there's nobody on the horizon, and they feel like they kept their end of the bargain, but God has let them down. We're going to talk about that next week. Um, the, I've, I sit with young people who are incredibly anxious at the prospect of any kind of sex, and, the, and I'm talking mostly teenagers and middle schoolers. I've got your back, don't worry, okay? I, I've, I've had to babysit young men who got in trouble with the court because they sexted a young woman something they really shouldn't have done, and so me and community service are what's keeping them out of jail. I have, I have sat with men of all different ages who have gotten to the point where they've realized they're unable to stop looking at porn and it's eating them up on the inside, and it's really starting to affect their marriage and their other relationships. And so the sexual revolution has certainly made ministry exciting. I would much prefer that it be boring, (laughs) but we live in the culture that we live in. So if you've struggled with porn, you're not alone in this room. If you've struggled with Uh, a marriage relationship where a spouse has cheated on you, you're not alone in this room. If you have been sexually active with people other than people you're married with, you're not alone in this room. If you've uh, gotten in trouble with the courts for things regarding this, you're not alone in this room. And so if I were to schedule a teaching rotation on sex and sexuality, like based on the needs of the congregation or based on the needs of people that I encounter, I would just put it on auto-repeat, and it it would be the only series that I cover, (laughs) ever. We're talking about sex again. We're talking about sex again. We're talking about... Just because it's the culture that we live in, okay? So now, if you're here and you're a middle schooler, I'm not going to do that. The last time I talked about sex was like 2012, and the fact that you're here today, you're thinking to yourself, great, I had to be in middle school now. Why couldn't I have been two years younger? I'd still be in G-Town. And I'm going to have to sit through this for how many weeks? Ah! I have to go to the bathroom. Okay, I I understand. I get it, okay? But church should be a place where you're hearing about sex and sexuality. Now, who knows? Maybe if I would put it on auto-repeat and we talked about sex all the time, we'd do better in the over-55 demographic, as in there'd be somebody opening the newspaper and going, hey, honey, there's a church in Nicholasville, and they talk about sex every Sunday. What time is the service? I don't know, okay? So I don't know. But I'm not going to do that, I promise. See, you and I live on the other side of the sexual revolution, 
We live in a post-Western global world. We live in a post-modern, post-Christian society. And it's different than it was, say, 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And so I wanted to start off this series. Today's message is more heady, but I want you to see and hopefully realize that there are some things that just by growing up American have come in you and that you may think and believe just because it's the culture that we live in. So all I want to do today is to shine a light on some of the things that we happen to think and believe about sex and sexuality. Did you know that you live in a culture? I know this is starting to sound like high school social studies class, isn't it? Could we put my definition of culture on the big board? Oh, okay. So culture, culture, you live in the American culture, and it's a specific culture. And again, I'm going to point, and they're going to put that up there, okay? So culture... Culture, by definition, is a way of life. It's especially the general customs and beliefs of a particular group of people at a particular time. If we go to the next picture, I've got another definition, okay? And so here you see general... No, 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 it's coming up. Here you see general customs uh, of a particular group of people, and then it's the behaviors and beliefs that are considered the norm among a group of people at that time. So in other words... It's what a group of people think and do. That's culture. You're like, I spent 12 weeks in a world civilization class in college, and that's what it is? Yes, that's what it is. It's what people think and do. So when it comes to sex and sexuality, what are are some things that our culture affirms and believes? Well, I'm going to cover these. So let's start working through these pictures. The first one about our culture. This is what our culture will say. Our culture says to all Americans, sex is an essential part of a happy life. Don't you want to be happy? You want to be happy, don't you? Happiness is good. Sadness is bad. And people who are happy are also sexually fulfilled. And so you want to make sure that you're sexually fulfilled because if you're not, you won't be happy. Again, you can find these in ladies' magazines. Dr. Oz will talk about this. They'll have Today Show segments that are highlighting this. This is part of the air that we breathe here in America. Another uh, idea that our culture has about sex and sexuality is try things, experiment. If you like something, great. If you don't like something, don't do it. Um, And by the way, you're kind of on your own. Good luck, and don't get any STDs. They hurt. Okay, and so culture kind of, and if you work in the medical profession, you know, you know, some of the nurses right now are shaking their heads. Yeah, okay, so you know, people learn, and then sometimes they learn the hard way. Okay, so another thing our culture uh, says is, and this is the next picture, oh, you should wait to get married. You're only 19. What are you thinking? Oh, you should definitely wait. You should wait until you're done with college. You should wait until you're ready. You should wait until you're established in your career. Did you know that the average age of a man who gets married for the first time in America is 29? And the average age of a first marriage for a woman in America is 28? So in the church, what we're saying is, if we say sex is for marriage, we're saying, okay, from age 15 all the way to age 30... That's a long time, isn't it? Some of the young people are like, amen. Okay, all right. Another thing our culture says uh, is that 
you should be having sex. And if you're not having sex, there's something wrong with you. I mean, come on. Our culture says this. This is in magazines. This is on the Today Show. This is everywhere. And this is especially true when it comes to couples. If you're a boyfriend, girlfriend, okay? Uh, there's an expectation. There are, there's actually angst on college campuses sometimes because if one partner won't have sex, the other person thinks, what's wrong with me? Does he not like me? Is this not going well? Is there a problem? Um, a very famous celebrity made the news several months ago because in their very famous celebrity relationship, now this turned out to be partly false, but that he wouldn't have sex. And so everybody was like, what's wrong with her? What's wrong with you? Why aren't you having sex? Is what people do. And so in America, here's how this works. 50%, 50% of all relationships are sexually active by week four. By the fifth month, 80% of all relationships are sexually active. So I'm just telling you, this is, this is you know, this is where we are. Um, another thing that our culture says is it's just physical. I like the little exercise partners I picked for that one. Okay, proud of myself. Um, <laughs> it's the little things, Okay. Culture says this about sex. Oh, it's just sex. How many times have you heard that phrase? It's just sex. Like it, and they think of it, well, it's, you know, it's like basketball, only it's an activity you do you know, naked. <laughs> and so there's this mindset that it's physical. And so because of this, built into this, is the idea that, well, like basketball, you probably need to practice to get really good at it, right? Because, you know... If it's an activity, you want to be good at the activity, so practice makes perfect. And so this is woven into that idea. Another idea, another part of sex and the way it plays out in our culture, if we can go to the next picture, um, we have a fatalism about lasting commitments. We are. We, we Americans, we are just, oh, relationships don't last. Like, in the culture as a whole. And so one of the things that Americans do is that we practice what we call serial monogamy. So we don't think it's a good idea to be cheating when you're in a relationship with someone. We generally frown on that as Americans. But we'll go with one relationship until it doesn't work, and then we'll go on another relationship hoping that that person's the one and that this will actually work out. And we keep doing that in a serial fashion. Okay, Serial monogamy is the word for it. Another part of the cultural milieu that we find ourselves in is what I like to call WIIFM, everybody's favorite radio station. If you've never heard of this, this is a huge part of how America trains Americans. We are trained culturally to have WIIFM. If you're not familiar with it, it's what's in it for me. (laughs) So we approach uh, school, what does this school have to offer me? Is it the degree I'm interested in? Relationships, what is this person doing for me? Um, this, these are questions people ask in relationships. Am I getting what I need? Does this relationship make me happy? Do the benefits outweigh the costs? And so that's part of the mindset that we have. And the, the last thing I want to draw out about our culture and some of the things is we Americans, we love ourselves some freedom, don't we? Freedom's awesome. And generally, the way that we take this when it comes to our personal lives is, hey, I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it, and don't you be judging me, okay? 
And so we love ourselves some freedom. We're on a freedom quest. And we think freedom's great until, like, we fall off a cliff or something bad happens, and then we're like, oh, oh, okay, you know, but freedom on the whole, we're all for it, okay? So all of this together, all of this together is part of the cultural context that we find ourselves in. And this is, for a lot of people, what I just talked about, the norm. And so in order to go anywhere, I just wanted to kind of shine a, shine a light to say this is where we are in America. If, the, if we can put up this next picture, we actually in America, we now only have one rule, in, in my opinion, when it comes to sex and sexuality, and that is sex should be something expressed between adults that is free and without any force or manipulation. So that's the one rule we kind of have left when it regards with regards to sex and how we practice that out. Um, and so, if you're adults, sorry teenagers, and if you're all in agreement, then the mindset is, go for it, right? Because life's short, and you want to be happy, and all these other things that we just talked about. I want to start off by suggesting to you something that's radically different from that. And it's one idea, and the idea is simply this. Sex isn't just sex. Like, well, no, no, no. Sex is more than just a pleasurable activity that you do with someone else. Uh, Sexual intimacy involves all of us, physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. Sex and sexuality involves all of us. And so it's a, it's, it involves us in a very complicated way that we still don't fully understand, and it's 2016, okay? So how do I know this is true? Well, for starters, it's what the Bible tells me, and I'll get to that in a minute. But the other reason I know it's true is because I look at our criminal law system in place in the United States, and I look at my experience, and you're like, what? Yeah, bear with me. So... If I hit someone, that's called assault, it's a crime. If I rape someone, that's also a crime, but it's more heinous. It's more heinous, not because it's sex, but because it involves the sexuality of someone. And so Americans will all recognize that a person, a victim of a physical assault, has a recovery period, and a victim of a rape has a recovery period but the rape victim is facing a much steeper climb. Why is that? If it's just a physical activity. Or even in a more dark door, right? If we open the door and we talked about sexual abuse, some of us have been victims of that. That's a very horrible, heinous thing. And again, it's not sex, but it involves sexuality. And so it's far more heinous than just hitting a child. So again, we can just look at our laws and our culture and we can go, you know what, that whole stuff about sex just being sex, I don't think we really mean it. (laughs) I think there must be something to this sex and sexuality that's more than just physical. And that's the point I want to make today. If you brought a Bible, you can open it to the book of Genesis. It's at the very beginning and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. Okay? I want to suggest to you today that sex and sexuality is a, is a pathway to intimacy that's put in all people by design, by God. So it's meant to be a channel 
that engages us physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, all of us in bonding with another person within the context of a permanent union called marriage, okay? So if you brought the Bible, Genesis 1, and I'll just read it from right up here, all right? Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals of the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God made the first people, a man and a woman, male and female, to be biologically complementary to each other. But look at the next verse, which is the kicker verse. And I think that's verse 31. So they'll put that verse up there. Verse 31. Then God looked over all he had made, and saw that it was very good. So, God created people with sexual capacity. He created people with sexual desires and drives. He created people with and, and gave them a command to procreate, which means make babies. And he created in them a longing for the other, for physical oneness. And all of this takes place before sin enters the world and before the fall of what a man, what, what we call. And so if they'll put those next verses up there, it's from Genesis 2. Genesis 2. Genesis 2.25. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. I don't know about you, but if I were standing up here right now naked, it would be bad on a lot of levels. <laughs> One, I'm 47 and not that svelte. But two, I just would be so self-conscious about it. I'd be like, ah! I'd run. Like, okay? So there's something powerful being said here in this verse. When a husband and a wife are naked together, and they're having sex, and it's part of that union, there's, there's, a, there's an element in which they, are, they can just be themselves. They're completely accepted. There's not any condemnation. There's not any of this weird dynamic stuff that can ruin relationships. Naked and no shame. It's speaking to intimacy. Intimacy is what it's speaking to. Um, and... And so sex by design is meant to be a pathway to intimacy. It's a way to be known and fully known by another person. It's a picture of the kind of closeness that God wants to have with people. Did you know that? That sex within marriage is meant to be a picture of the kind of relationship that God wants to have with people? Some of you are wigging out right now. You're like, what? No, that is not right. I want to make a case for that. First of all, your homework is go home and read Ezekiel 16, okay? Just read that and then tell me I'm lying, okay? Ezekiel chapter 16. But if that weren't enough, there's an entire book of the Bible called Song of Songs. I don't know if you've ever come across it. Those of you who are younger are going to be like, okay, I'm just going to read you some random passages from Song of Songs. One night as I lay in bed, I yearned for my lover. I yearned for him, but he did not come. 
And I said to myself, I will get up and roam and search for him. I will search for the one I love. You're beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair falls in waves. Awake, north wind. Rise, soul. Blow on my garden. This is very erotic. (laughs) And it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. The Israelites and many, many people throughout church history have looked at the Song of Songs and said, it's a picture. It's a picture of a couple that court, that marry, that become sexually aroused and consummate it. And it's also a picture of the kind of intimacy that God wants to have, the kind of closeness that God wants to have with his people. It's one picture with two meanings. One picture two meanings. I want to draw this out by explaining to you what a typical wedding ceremony would look like in, in, among Jewish circles in the first century. So if they'll put those up there, the stages of a Jewish wedding. A Jewish wedding in Jesus' day, oh, this is, by the way, <laughs> this is my favorite, you can Google this, Someone has drawn a picture of what the woman in Song of Songs would look like if you took it literally. (laughs) Not that attractive, but her neck is a tower. I mean, it really is, okay? So so if we could go to the picture about the wedding, okay? So a typical Jewish wedding in Jesus' day had three parts. The first stage was the betrothal stage. That's where a bride's parents and a groom's parents would get together and they would, they would say, yes, these two kids, yes, they're getting married. And the bride's parents would pay the groom or the groom's parents a dowry, a sum of money that would help pay for the cost of the wedding itself, which would last for a week. And you would entertain everybody. In terms of salvation history, the moment when we're won by Jesus' blood and we get that invitation in God's family, that's like a betrothal period, right? By the way, we talked about this last month. Joseph and Mary, when they showed up in Bethlehem, they were in the first stage. They were in the betrothal period, or maybe the second stage. Um, But the first stage is, you know, roughly equivalent to our idea of engagement. They know marriage is coming. Boom. They've locked in, so to speak. Right? The second stage in a Jewish wedding was a preparation period. The groom would typically get busy constructing a residence off the home of his parents for himself and his future bride. When Jesus says to his followers, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house, he's using This imagery of a wedding. He is the groom. You're the bride. He's going to prepare a a room, a residence off his father's house for you when you and he are finally together. The third state of uh, of third stage of a Jewish wedding uh, would it would last a week, and it was the wedding feast itself. It would start at midnight. So the groom would gather some of his buddies and they would light torches. It's midnight, it's dark. And they would go on a processional through the village to the bride's residence. 
as people heard them, they would be very excited. They would be making noise. Villagers would come out, light torches, and follow them. When they showed up at the bride's house, the bride, who would know that the groom was coming, because they would have arranged it ahead of time, this is the night, she would have her maidens waiting with her, and then they would accompany the groom to start the wedding. Jesus tells several stories about his return and uses this imagery. He tells the story about ten maidens. Remember the ten maidens? So they're there with the bride waiting for the groom to come, and five of them have extra oil, and five of them don't. And Jesus says, the groom gets delayed, and the five who don't have extra oil are caught. They don't, can't light their lamps. And so when the processional comes and they start the wedding, those five bridesmaids, those five maidens are off buying oil, and they miss out on the feast. In Revelation 19, verses 7 through 10, we're given this same imagery. And if they'll put that up here. So this is at the end of the Bible. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, These are true words that come from God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said, no, don't worship me. I'm just a servant of God, just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God, for the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness to him. So at the very end of the Bible, the picture that God wants to paint about when God's people are finally united with him in the resurrected life. What's the imagery he uses? He uses the imagery of a wedding itself and a wedding feast. So I want to suggest to you again that sex and sexuality, there's more to it than just something physical. There's more to it than just something physical. In our Bible, the very opening pages in Genesis feature a man and woman who come together. And at the very end of the Bible, we're painted a picture when Jesus returns and it's the resurrected life. It's the imagery of a wedding feast. This isn't by accident. It's almost as if God wants, by design, through a fidelity marriage, to communicate a picture of what God wants with his people. All right? So sex isn't just about sex. It isn't just about what you want or what makes you happy or what you like or don't like. There's more to it than that. So I have some questions that I want to pose, and I want to read these to make sure I get my questions right. If you're married and you're here today and you're married, would you be willing to see sexual intimacy as a gift from God designed to draw you together? And would you make that a priority? Guys, that she's not a robot. You're going to have to win her over, right? And ladies, understand that that's, that's a God-given means for you to be bonded together and for him to feel bonded to you. Would you commit to making sexual intimacy a priority in 2016? I say this as a pastor because I've sat through so many couples they had a kid. They had a second kid. There was one ear infection after another. And it be, weeks and weeks became months, and months became a very long time. And all of a sudden now, they're sitting on opposite ends of the couch, and they're talking about divorce. 
It's all connected, right? And the second question is, if you're not married, would you be willing to give God permission in this season at the start of 2016? Would you be willing to give God permission to have editability in what you do with your body? Would you just be willing to give him input and say? Another question, and this is for those of you who are in middle school and high school and maybe under the age of 18. You're told a lot of stuff. It's on your phones. It's on billboards. It's in the double entendre jokes on the sitcoms that you watch, right? It's everywhere. Would you be willing to concede that maybe, just maybe, your parents have something to say about sex and sexuality that might be accurate. I mean, think about it. You're here. You're here, okay? A stork just didn't come down and drop you, okay? Would you be willing to concede that maybe your parents and even the people in this community of faith would be a good source of information, right? And the last question is this, and that's for all of us. Who do you want to become? Well, I want you to think about your life and your sex and sexuality, all of you, and think long term. When, if you're lucky enough to turn 80 years of age, do you want to have spent your entire life just seeking out pleasure and trying to get your needs met here, there, and everywhere? Or do you want to look back and be able to say, I made some covenants and I kept some covenants. What kind of person do you want to be? In the Bible, God paints a picture of the kind of relationship that he has with his people. And that picture is that of a husband and a wife. And in the Bible, God's the husband. And at first, Israel and then the church is the wife, the bride. Let me ask you a simple question. In all these pages, does God ever get to a point where he says about his wife, you know what, you're just not doing it for me anymore. You're not meeting my needs. This isn't working. We, we need to part ways. There's judgment. There's exile. There's all kinds of stuff that happens. But does God ever completely walk away? No. Does God ever say of his wife, uh, You know, because you've been unfaithful, because you've been uncommitted, because you've been inconsistent, deals off. No. If anything, what we see of God from Genesis to Revelation is a kind of unwavering commitment, fidelity, and passion for his bride. First Israel and then the church. And he calls us into that kind of relationship with him whereby we show the world a picture of what it's like to have a better promise and a better future. Sex isn't just about sex, and that's simply where I want to start. It gets very practical from here on out. But today, I just want your thinker to be turning and for you to be contemplating and chewing. What is this thing, sex and sexuality? If it's more than just something physical, how should I walk this out? What does God have to say? What should I factor in my decisions as I go about life?